Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Well, um, I can't believe we're done with Esther. I'm, it, I, are you sad or what? I'm very sad. Me too. And especially, you know, as we're traveling through this time personally, as a country, as a world, the things that we're dealing with right now, many of us feel uncertain. Maybe I should say all of us. How about that? Uncertain or devastated, perhaps, fearful. Um, We are certainly in a battle right now, aren't we? between good and evil. We're in a battle. And so um, this study of learning about the battle that happened thousands of years ago has such pertinence to us. And if there's one lesson that we can take away and that we've learned from this study, here it is. Are you ready? God is on his throne. He is on his throne. And he uses situations, he uses weak people, he uses whatever situation he desires to continue his work, doesn't he? And so, you know, when we think about the story, he allowed a weak, gullible, um, self-indulgent king called Ahasuerus, Xerxes in some versions, um, to be on the throne. But the king was used by God to save his people. God was on the throne. Even among, around this self-indulgent pagan king, God ordered the steps, didn't he? Isn't that an encouragement as we're struggling through all that? And the evil Haman, as he was planning all these things, his power was very, very temporary because God's plan prevailed. God's plan prevailed. Do you think he has a plan in November 2020? I think so. Absolutely. What is his plan? Well, his plan is just like in the book of Esther, to save the innocent from death. Then, now, in the future, wow, same destiny, same plan. That should be such an encouragement to us as we look around all the craziness of what's happening in our world, in our country right now. And I'll tell you something else that's very encouraging. The thing that really encouraged me, and Linda Fuller and I have been talking about this, that you know, we plan to do this study of God's masterpiece about Esther and so forth. We uh, chose this, God placed it on our hearts to do this, back in early March. And so when we see that um, he planned, this is before the pandemic. This is between the crazy election stuff. This was before a lot of the things that we're struggling through, the riots in the streets and all those kinds of things. This was before all that. And so God planned for us to learn these things and see these things through his word to encourage us. So if there's anything that should encourage us as women, that he cares enough about our hearts and what we're fearful of and what what we're seeing around us is that he so 
has a divine design. He so wants us to be his masterpieces that he ordered and orchestrated for us to be studying these very things that we've been studying. Amazing. Does that make us feel loved or what? Absolutely, absolutely. And as we talk about that today, we are also, in our final lesson, we're going to be celebrating God's mightiness. Celebrating God's mightiness. And we begin by looking at something that uh, is very, very important in our lives as Christians. We're going to be looking at the importance for self-control, a needed discipline in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but um, have you ever lost control of yourself? I know, we burst out laughing at that, don't we? Yeah, how many times? <laughs> I love it. Denise says, how many times this morning? Really? Okay. How about this? Ever overeaten? No. How about overtalked? Overemoted? <laughs> um, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't even talk about overeating as we're heading into the Thanksgiving season here in the holiday season. But um, we all have our areas of challenge. Maybe we have a challenge in all of them, but there's probably a particular area that maybe is your area that you struggle with most. A on your outline, what areas do we struggle in? Maybe yours is losing a temper over uh, things when things don't go your way. Or... <clears throat> How about losing control over your mouth with a boss, coworker, family member? Uh, and I'm sure all of you have at one time felt like this. Oh, if I could just stuff that back into my mouth. Have you ever felt that way? Yeah, absolutely. Even, here's an encouragement. Even the mega Christian, the Apostle Paul, struggled with these things. Isn't that encouragement? You know, I don't know about you, but the Apostle Paul, seems so lofty and high that when I get to heaven, he's kind of, if I, when I see him, I'm going to be going, oh, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to go stand over here by Peter. He seems more like me or something like that. He just seems so stellar and strong and mega Christian, doesn't he? And listen to what he says. You know this passage. He says, um, for I know, it's in Romans 7, 19, for I do not do the good I want. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can't you identify with that? I hope not every day and constantly, but yes. And, but B, what is the key? What do we do about that? And we're going to be seeing this today in the lives of the Jewish people as they're facing uh, what they've been facing. What is the key? It, what it boils down is our ability to control self. Our ability to control self. A great quote by Richard Walters says this, self-control is managing our attitudes, our feelings, and actions so they serve our long-term interests and those of others. Self-control comes to people who learn discipline and social skills. It increases in those who accept God's grace in their lives and who seek to know and apply God's grace in their lives and who seek to know and apply divine truth in a disciplined manner. That's one of those quotes that I want to go home and kind of ponder a little bit. It's just very, very good. That it's a matter of, you know, what is the key? It's a matter of controlling ourselves, managing our attitude in the interest of our long-term interest. For example, I have a long-term interest, and I know you're tired of hearing about it, 
about the whole the 20 pound thing. And that's my long-term interest, you know, get rid of it. And, um, but the problem, my, one of my areas, the self-control area, is eating, overeating. And recently, it was my birthday, and um, I put my long-term goal aside and had the biggest piece of chocolate cake you have ever seen in your life. I mean, I'm talking an interest of my long-term goals, it should have been, or a bite. But no, I got off the track of my long-term interest because I succumbed to what? Lack of self-control. That is what that quote is talking about. The key is the end of that quote. It says, those who accept God's grace. In other words, those of us who know Jesus Christ personally what did Jesus say when he was about to leave earth? He said, I'm going to send to you a helper, didn't he? A counselor to walk alongside and to fill you with the fruits of the spirit. And guess what one of the fruits of the spirit is? Self-control. So we have it available to us. In the original language, in Greek, self-control means strength in. That I can have strength in. I can have strength inside, in the circumstances that I am. Uh, I can have inner strength, another way to put it. In other words, it describes mastery over our inner desires. And I'm going somewhere with this because we're going to observe this in the life of the Jewish people as they were going through their difficult time. Such good news because we don't have to be slaves to our self-indulgence we can allow the Holy Spirit to blossom that fruit of self-control in our lives. We just have to yield to him. We just have to be prayerful about, about it. We don't have to be defeated every time we face our particular um, struggle area like chocolate cake or whatever it is. Uh, we don't have to succumb to it. It's human nature to um, do back to people um, what, when, when, when we've been hurt, one of the, the, the things that we do sometimes, I'll get this out eventually, is retaliate. That is one of our self-control e efforts. If we have been hurt, our instinct, our natural instinct, is to retaliate and say, okay, you hurt me. Guess what? I am going to hurt you right back. And we're going to watch and see the self-control of the Jewish nation in this area of retaliation. It is an amazing, amazing uh, story and, uh, and lesson for us to learn. We do not have to give in to that area of lack of self-control. We can allow the Holy Spirit to blossom in that area in our life. I recently read about a man whose wife uh, went out uh, jogging, and she was a mother of three small children, and she said, um, if you, uh, honey, I'm going to run and get, you know, my, my walking done. The kids are still sleeping. If you just kind of keep your eye on them, you know, I'll be back in a, in a little bit. So go, 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 go run. And while she was running, their neighbor was driving past her. He was plugging in his phone to charge his battery, hit her, and killed her. Now, when the husband was interviewed about it and talked about it, he said, I do not want to 
um, file, you know, anything. I don't want, you know, a police report or anything. The man has suffered so much remorse and pain already by this mistake that he made and his negligence of worrying about his phone that I, I do not want to bring that on him. I do not want to retaliate to this man, even though he took my beloved wife by mistake. Wow. Human nature wants to retaliate. That went against human nature, didn't it? I, the article didn't say whether he was a Christian or not, but I think he was, don't you? Absolutely. What a victory when we see God at work so mightily that there seems, even when there seems like there's a just cause for re retaliation, I'm going to get back at that person for doing that to me or hurting me. We, but instead, we see self-control, mastery over self. We see instead a restraint and a forgiveness. When we see that, we know that that person is allowing the Holy Spirit to give them the fruit of, of the spirit of self-control. There was a, when I was in Japan, and um, part of the time, most of the time, my mother did homeschooling with us, and then we moved to a larger city, Nagoya, Chisato, and um, there was a mission school there that we attended, and there was a, I was sort of in a, like, a, almost like a one-room schoolhouse. We had little, little, littles, and then we also had older children, and this one was an older young man. And um, his dad had been a prisoner, prisoner of war. Uh, he was a fighter pilot, shot down, was a prisoner of war. And after he had been here and he was released and you know, went on back to the United States, he began to feel this tremendous burden for the Japanese people. And he, became a, he was a Christian he became, and he just was so burdened. He said, I am going to go back and be a missionary in Japan. Hence, little Paul DeShazer, who ended up being my friend because they were missionaries to Japan in that area. Wow. Self-control, forgiveness, moving on. Wow. What a trait. See, we're talking about all this, lack of retaliation, self-control, so forth. What does this have to do with our story? See on your outline, what is the example in our story? Now, um, we're going to start in chapter 9. I'm reading 16 verses, so just sit tight, okay? Long passage, but we're going to see this trait lived out in the Jewish people. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those um, who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the people. All the officials and the providences, the satraps and the governors and royal agents who also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Because, remember, Ahasuerus said, I cannot revoke Edict I, but we are now going to have Edict II, which means you may defend yourselves. And so all of his officials got in the game to help them with um, protecting themselves. 
for Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all his enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did um, as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the, Jew killed, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including, verse 10 tells us, um, the sons, uh, the 10 sons of Haman. Dropping down to 16, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, and, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000, wow, of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. There's a significance about that. We'll get to that in just a minute. But number one, what had the Jews experienced? As we've talked about, I've been wounded. I've been hurt. I feel like I want to retaliate. I lost this. I lost that. I, I lost that argument, for goodness sake. And so as we think about what are some of the things that touch our lives that cause us to want to retaliate, what had the Jews experienced? Remember, they had um, been exiled. They had been pulled out of their land. They had lived in fear of their lives and those of their families. It could have been a bloodbath of retaliation, couldn't it? They had kind of been given, you know, a car blanche, go after it. But what did they do? Number two, what was the opportunity? They had the opportunity to do whatever they wanted, according to chapter 8, verse 11, to defend themselves and their families. Three, what was their response? In other words, how did the Jews respond to the potential of angry retaliation and vengeance? Here they had an opportunity. The king was going to be turning his head the other way. What did they do? Notice in verse 6 that only 500 men were killed on the first day defending themselves. And in the following verses, it says three times, we only read two, but they're actually three times, it says that they did not take the plunder. They were given that opportunity. They said, hey, you know, if those people come after you and you're defending yourself and the family, by the way, anything that's left over in their yard, go ahead and take it. It's yours. You get the plunder. And it says three times. God doesn't want us to miss this. They did not take the plunder. It was not a retaliation, but a ridding themselves of others who could potentially hurt them. Now, I am sure knowing Haman and how he functioned, doesn't say this specifically, but I'm just reading between the lines, that I am sure there are people left in the kingdom, men that were left in the kingdom, that could have said, you know what? Okay, the Jews are done with all this. It's time to get back and see what we can do. Remember what Haman said? Oh, yeah, yeah, well, well let's see what we can do, including their ten, his 10 sons. And so what they did is they wanted to make sure that they were safe from anybody who could have potentially regrouped and come after them again, including the 10 sons. It actually talks about, in verse 13, how they took the 10 sons and hung them on the gallows. They're already dead. Hung them on the gallows. And I think it, it just sounds very cruel and horrible to our you know, 21st century mind. But again, it was a reminder that the king has ordered 
that we may defend ourselves. So don't think about doing any further harm to us. So, so it was a protective way of taking care of it. The pivotal verse, uh, verse uh, 16, to defend their lives. Now, 75,000 people, um, 75,000 people in verse 16 sounds like a lot of killing, but remember, let's not minimize the size of the kingdom. Remember that the entire empire uh, stretched from Ethiopia to India, huge, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. So again, it was not retaliation, it was to, verse 16, defend their lives. It was defense, not revenge. In fact, I believe that we see restraint on the part of the Jews, especially because of the comments about uh, plunder. Restraint because here's why. They knew uh, and were holding back to do the right thing because this was something that they had been taught in the Torah, in the Old Testament. Um, and also, it's a, pr a principle in the New Testament as well. It's a Judeo-Christian principle to have self-control over your anger and your internal human trait to want to retaliate. And it's, but it's a Christian principle, it was a Jewish principle to get that under control according to the Torah and then the New Testament as well. It goes against the human nature, but that is not God's way. When we're struggling with wanting to strike back when we've been hurt, um, perhaps because we've been unjustly treated or deeply hurt, what do we do? How do we handle those moments when just by nature we want to inflict pain back? Let's look at some uh, principles. D on your outline. What are some principles regarding retaliation? First, number one, we have a responsibility to be different from our culture, don't we? Romans 12, 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. And then another verse says, uh, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We've been bought with a very costly price, which is the very blood of Jesus that he shed on our behalf. And so uh, uh, that we have a responsibility not to give in to that cultural um, desire to retaliate, to, to act out our anger, act out our hurt, or whatever it is. And as Christians, this is very, very important. Not only do we have a responsibility to be different, number two, as Christians, we are family. We are family. Particularly, um, if we have been wronged by another Christian, it is very, very uh, painful. But if you think about when something happens within your blood relatives, your, your um, family family, your real family, it, you, you tend to say, well, you know, I want to work through this because after all, you know, she's my, you know, cousin, second cousin, three times removed, and, you know, we, <laughs> we have the same family, you know, ties, and I really want to deal with this. Look what we have as sisters in Christ. We have the blood of Jesus. It's not just the blood that goes through our veins, a blood tie connection between family members. We have the blood of Jesus, the commonality of the shed blood of Jesus. So is, are our relationships within the Christian family important? Absolutely. 
Do I have an obligation to make sure that I'm handling any conflicts, any pain, and any issues, any anger? Um, do I have a responsibility to prayerfully look at it and say, how do I respond to this? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Romans 12, 4 through 5 says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. As members of the same body, we have to be so careful with how we deal with conflict with one another. Retaliation is not the right way. Retaliation is wrong. It, doesn't, it is not a biblical response. Matthew 18, 15 through 16 is one of the hallmarks of that concept. It says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you and every, that every charge may be established by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. In other words, when you have hurt my feelings, I need to say, you know what? Maybe I misunderstood, but that really kind of hurt my feelings. And this is why I have a responsibility to work that out because we are blood relatives. We are one body through Jesus. We have that commonality. We have a responsibility. Number three, it is God's job to defend with justice. We need to remember whose job it is to defend and deal justly. It is the Lord. It is the Lord's. Remember, you've heard us tell the story so many, 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 many times, but when we were about to purchase this property, it was $3.1 million. And we probably had five cents in the bank. And you've heard Bob talk about that. But anyway, um, and as we were, you know, pondering that, and many churches locally chipped in and said, hey, we want to buy one acre, and we want to buy five acres, and we want to contribute this, and, and things were starting to come together for us to be able to um, walk on this campus. I, and here we are now, standing in one of the buildings. Is that amazing or what? Absolutely, Denise. Oh, it's just incredible to me. Bob and I still pinch ourselves when we pull on the property and say, this happened in our lifetime, for goodness sake. Wow. Anyway, but here's the thing that was interesting. As we were getting ready to, you know, to occupy and, um, you know, put everything together here at the, on the Sheridan House property, um, locally there were some people that were not happy about us moving onto this property. There's some beautiful, you know, estates and so forth around here in the, in the city of David and uh, David. Yeah. <laughs> that too. Um, <laughs> Davy. And, um, and so they began to say, they began to spread rumors. And they said, oh boy, you know, the Sheridan House organization's come, coming here and it's like a jail. Yeah. It's like a, a, a penal institution. Yeah, you remember, Ellie? And, you know, they're, they're going to have lockdown here and all this kind of thing. We can't have this in our neighborhood. And then they added to it by um, spreading all kinds of rumors about Bob personally. Oh, some of the things that they said about it, I'm not even going to tell you because it makes me so mad. Anyway, <laughs> retaliation. Rah! Anyway, and um, I, when those things were coming out, I remember saying to him, you know what, don't you think, Bob, that you ought to 
you know, write an email back to the people that are saying these awful things that are not true about Sharon House and the awful things that are not true about you? Don't you think you should go and write an email and say, hey, this is not fact? And he said this, God will protect my reputation. He will be my justice. And that made me a little scared. But anyway, and, um, but God began to do that very thing. It was the most amazing thing. He had a, a friend that was an editor of Miami Herald at the time, and he said, hey, you know what? Let's, why don't we do an article in the Miami Herald, and we'll put a picture of the rendering of what you're thinking about for the main building at Sheridan House, and just expose people to what's really going on. No, this is not a jail. This is not a penal colony. This is, this is a, a ministry to families and, and so forth. And so they did that. And then when we had a, a very, very important um, town hall meeting regarding it, you know, Bob, with fear and trepidation, was going to this meeting thinking, what's going to happen, wringing his hands. And when he pulled in, there were just tons and tons and tons of cars. You may remember this too, Ellie. And um, they, there were so many cars, and there were people doing um, eating together. Tailgate. And as he walked in, he saw all these people. He thought, oh, my goodness. And it turned out that they were the, the Christians locally that were saying, that does not sound like you know the Sheridan House that I've heard about. That does not sound like the Bob Barnes I know about. We're going to get behind this thing. And wow, and everything went operational. Wow. Leaving it in the hands of God. Wow. Wow. Again, Romans 12, 17 through 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If, as po if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Look what God did here at Sheridan House. Amazing. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And as we've seen so often in the study, God sees all, and in his time, he will, just, he will justly deal with the issues. I mean, I still am like, I just still love, I think the most fun part, other than what we're going to talk about in just a minute, is the night that Ahasuerus was, had insomnia and said, bring me a history book. I need something to put me to sleep, boy. And so they come and read, and he finds out about Mordecai. I love the creativity of how God works, don't you? And that's such an example. And so what happens is when we release our desire, our human desire for revenge or retaliation, God is able to do what he desires to do in a beautiful, magnificent, creative, I would never have thought of that Lord way. Absolutely. And so what happens next? We see them enjoying the festival of Purim. After defending themselves, what did the Jews do then? Look at verses 17 through 26. This is on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of fasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews 
of the villages who uh, lived in the rural towns held the 14th day of the month of Adar and a, a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they would send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded all these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, um, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. As the month that they had turned them, that had turned them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday, that they should make them a day of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And then they go on uh, to talk about. Uh, what it transpired. Cast per, that is lots, they cast lots per, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return to his own head and that he and his sons would be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term per. Therefore, because of all that had been written in the letter of what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to, to them. So what did they do? Well, they set aside a day of feast and celebration. A on your outline. What is Purim? Number one, first of all, when is it? On the 14th or 15th day of Adar, they set aside a day to celebrate the final month of the biblical year which corresponds with our February and March. Final month of the biblical year. Per means lots, lots, that they, you know, that they cast lots to determine what day they were um, going to be, was going to be picked for their extermination. M is plural, like how, you know this term, cherub, M, means lots of cherubs. Or how about seraph, another name for angels, seraphim, many, many seraphs. So the word is, is plural. So um, they celebrated because God had taken the day of the, that month in Adar that was marked for their day of extermination, and it became a day of liberation. Wow. A day of thanksgiving and rejoicing over what God has done in their lives. And it is still... Um, celebrated today. Number two, how is it celebrated? On the 13th day or the 14th day, wherever you're located uh, in the Jewish community, community, the day before is observed as a day of feasting and prayer, commemorating uh, Esther's fast. Remember, when she, before she went to the king, she said, ask, um, I'm going to ask my women, would you ask all the people, all the Jewish people, to be praying and fasting for me? And so to commemorate that, they actually have a day of fasting. A Jewish friend, uh, believer, Messianic Jew, gave me a description of it, and it's on your place in front of you. And it talks about what they actually do, and it talks about um, in it talks about in Jerusalem that they observe um, it on the fifteenth day of Adar, and then in Tel Aviv on the fourteenth day of Adar, and it talks about how the festivities include sending gifts to the poor. Um, or to each other, to friends, and it's a feast day. 
The food includes, um, on your sheet, it says um, boiled beans or peas. I don't know how yummy that sounds, but whatever. Um, and a kind of a cereal that um, Daniel ate way back in the book of Daniel. Maybe some of you are familiar. Maybe you've celebrated this. I don't know. And cookies that, um, not chocolate, I don't think. But anyway, um, especially they're called hamatash cookies. I don't know if you're familiar with that. If we had had a, a Jewish bakery, I might have gone and gotten some for us. Three-cornered, filling them with is poppy seed and fillings like apricots and cherries and all those kinds of things. And apparently it is just such a happy, happy occasion. They read the story of Esther and they, when they say the word Haman, they take off their shoes and beat the table. And when they say the word Mordecai and Esther, they cheer. And some of the little ch girls get to dress up like Esther and, you know, act like she's the queen. And just so, so fun, such a celebration. So this is how it was ce celebrated, an, a day of, look what God has done. Amazing, amazing. B, what was its purpose? And this is so important. Look at verses 27 and 28. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and made their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time uh, appointed each year. And these days would be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, city, that these days of Purim would never fall into disuse among the Jews or should... Um, the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Do you, can you hear what they're saying here? First thing, to pass on the legacy to a future generation. To pass on the legacy of gratitude to God in a, a, in a way of celebration and saying, look what God did. And to pass it on to the next generation. Small a, to provide a visual aid, a monument and the fountain to help them remember always who God was in their lives and what he did. B, to remember in the humdrum of life. You know, we go through our retreat keys. Okay, I got to go to the grocery store today. You know, I got to get the laundry going. Oh, my goodness, I need to fold last week's. And, and, and oh, you know, the counters are a mess. And we go through such normal stuff. And this was an opportunity to step away from the humdrum and say, let's talk about God. Let's think about God. Let's think about his provision in our lives. God knows us so well. And Psalm 103, verse 14 says, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Don't you love that? I'm, I'm so grateful that he knows how dusty I am. And so what I need as a dusty human being is I need remembrances. I need things to keep my, my mind on the things that are the most important in my life, like celebrating what God has done, especially when things are difficult. Um, C, to remember how God turned disaster into glory. As they're go go telling the story or reading the story from the book of Esther, you know, wow, this was about to go really, really south. But look what God did. Amazing. And it's, it's a chance to, to see how God delights in taking our difficulties uh, and making them into joy. Um, Bob and I were speaking uh, a few years ago in the town of Enterprise, Alabama. I don't know if any of you have been there. And um, in the downtown area, 
there was a massive statue of a bull weevil. And we were like, what in the world? I mean, that looks like Venus de Milo or the a Statue of Liberty or something, and she's holding a bug. And we were kind of like saying, wow, that's very interesting. And so they began to tell us a story. And they told us how in the 1890s that um, they had <coughs> a failed uh, cotton crop. Their cotton crop failed because of bull weevils. And so in desperation, the, the farmers planted peanuts and several other crops. And guess what? The bull weevils didn't like it. And so they had a bumper crop of peanuts and the other things that they planted, and the town became very, very prosperous. So they made a monument to the bull weevil, which still stands today, um, a monument to remind them that a potentially negative situation can be turned around into a blessing. Isn't that amazing? I love that. I think I'm going to get a bull weevil. Anyway, second purpose, to set aside a day to celebrate, a day of joy and feasting, A, to turn the focus from negative to positives, negatives to positives. Don't we have propensity, propensity to look back on the things that are negative rather than looking up in hope to what God can do. I am embarrassed to admit to you the number of times this year I've said, well, welcome to 2020. You said that too? Yes. Wow. We get so bogged down, snagged on the past that, um, you know, we're quick to say, oh my goodness, this tropical storm, I, I can't even tell you, we lost two trees. You know, and, and rather than, rather the negatives, rather than, wow, you wouldn't believe my little neighbor next door came and she started pulling up palm fronds off of the, the, the driveway for me so we can move the, the garbage out. Rather than that, we're, I can't believe we lost two trees. We have a propensity to think about the negative with the positive. So what we need to do, B, is to turn our focus from past pain to future hope, future hope. We need to retain our focus and learn to look to the future. Uh, it, it's a choice, isn't it? What do I choose to look at? Uh, we need to choose our attitude. Even during this pandemic, during the quarantine, uh, many of you said, you know what? It, it was very challenging to be under the roof of the whole family and all those kinds of things, but wow, there was just a real bonding that happened. And, uh, and one um, couple told me, they said, you know, I, I, it was very challenging doing this virtual education thing with them, virtual school. And, and they said, but you know what? We started talking about, wow, in just a couple months, they're probably going back to school. And we started thinking, oh, I'm going to miss the little blonde heads that are sitting there doing their virtual schooling. And so there are many positives that come out of something that seems so on the surface negative. Bull weevils. Wow. We need to see, turn from complaining to celebrating. Learning to celebrate the small things in life. I love this quote by Lucy Swindoll, sister to Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll. The highest and most desirable state of the soul is to praise God in celebration for being alive. Amen. Our hurried, 
stressful, busy lives are unquestionably um, <laughs> the most dangerous enemy of celebrating life itself. Life is full of perks if we train ourselves to perceive them. Isn't that good? I have a friend like that. I have a friend that, that just gets so excited over the least little things, and she'll say, oh, the temperature has gone down 10 degrees. I think fall has come to South Florida. <laughs> She's so excited. And then I have another friend who's exactly the opposite. Everything is a hassle. I'm going to, on a picnic to the park with my family. That means I got to fight the crowds at Publix. Got to figure out what everybody's going to eat. They probably won't like what I picked. And they're going to be complaining the whole time. And she's exactly the opposite, that every single thing is going to be a hassle or a problem. Wow. What we need to do is to celebrate the little joys in life. Because guess what? Most of our life is small. Most of our life is small. Which one are you? Which one am I? We don't, we don't have to answer this out loud, okay? <laughs> but um, how do we become celebrants over the little, little things? Remember last year we studied Philippians 3, at 14, 13 through 14, and this, is, this little passage is actually talking about our walk with the Lord, but oh my goodness, it's so applicable to what we're talking about here. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own talking about being positive and looking at the happy things. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and here's a word that's interesting, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're not to dwell on our past, but press on. Press on. Put that behind us. That's not going to change anything. Press on. Um, I love the word straining forward because sometimes, guess what? It is a struggle, isn't it? Sometimes it is a struggle, but it's a worthy struggle. And the end of the verse says how? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, through prayer, through choosing, through taking captive every thought, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. I am going to strain, Lord Jesus, help me um, to choose not to go to negative land. Help me to dwell on the things that you have done. And we too need to celebrate our poems. We need to say, wow, look what God has done. Amazing, the miracles. We need to do that. Well, see on your outline, what is our Purim? Again, the timing of God in this Bible study. I can't even believe it because guess what? Our Purim is right around the corner in two weeks. It's called Thanksgiving. Number one, Thanksgiving, a day of gratitude and refocus. Pilgrims set out, set aside a day to feast and celebrate God's intervention in the new world, didn't they? The purpose was to say, look what God has done. It was their Purim because they had made it across the ocean to, to set up a country where they could worship God freely, where they could follow their um, convictions and their consciences before God. And here they were in this new land. And yes, it was harsh, but they were going to celebrate the fact 
that they were in a new land, that God had allowed them to come to this uh, new land. We have allowed sometimes in our culture to make us think that it's a day of football, food, and family. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. However, um, we want to remember what the original day was for, what they did, what the pilgrims did. And the amazing thing about the pilgrims setting up their Purim or Thanksgiving is that they, as they were celebrating God's provision, over half of the population had died. Only two of the pilgrim families did not have one of their or many of their family members die. And yet they were able to say, look, what God has done, choosing to celebrate. Wow. There is a wonderful book written by um, Eric Metastas. It's a children's book, but it's called The True Miracle of Thanksgiving about Squanto. And Squanto, we know, is a historic figure. I never knew his story until I read this book to my grandchildren. And I, I just couldn't believe what God did to orchestrate this uh, Indian, Squanto, to help the pilgrims um, in their celebration. It is a miracle about his life. And I would encourage you either to go online and read about it or get this book, it's wonderful. And um, just to, to say, wow, God, I, what, you went, what you did to order and orchestrate that first Thanksgiving is incredible, wow. Um, what an opportunity for make, to make our Thanksgiving celebrations to be a monument, a Purim, to teach our family, to remember what God has done, even if there have been bow weevils in your life. Wow, wow. There is something to be grateful to God for. Find them, remember them, focus on them. And as we head into this, this holiday season, holy day season, let's make it more than turkey and, and gathering of clan. Let's, let's talk about, number two, how we can build monuments in this Purim. Um, you know, you're creative. Do what you think. Read the Pilgrim story. Read the Squanto story um, of how God provided a new land to ensure freedom of religion and so forth. Um, what we like to do in our home is to put a poster up either on the refrigerator or on the door. And, you know, on the top, we'll put a, a, a Thanksgiving verse from Psalms or something. This is what I'm thankful for. And everybody comes in and writes down, well, I'm very thankful for so-and-so and so-and-so. And then when we sit down at the dining room table at Thanksgiving for the, for the meal, the feast, and, and talk about the things that we're grateful for. I remember one year, we usually put it up at the very beginning of the week, like on a Sunday. So as people are coming into the house, they can write their, their um, um, grateful Thanksgiving thing that they're grateful for. And I remember one year I, I was a little bit belated in getting it up and um, Roby's little children came in and said, Mammy, where is our Thanksgiving poster? I wanna write my thankful things. And I thought, wow, Lord, thank you for that reminder. And it has become a tradition that we have uh, really loved as our family. It's helped us to get our focus in the right place. How do we build our monuments? Um, you figure it out. How can we do that? Let's make it be a Purim, a feast, a celebration of God's intervention, a time of passing on to the next generations, especially in such a time as this. 
especially in such a time as this. In the end, what really counts? A, what will we be remembered for? Will we, will we be remembered as a celebrant or a complainer? How will people rem remember us? Um, that's something that we really, really want to think about. Um, and, and we've been doing that all fall with Esther and Mordecai's life and with Haman's life and, and um, the villains in the, in the story as well. We've been able to lift them up and talk about their character traits and how that speaks to us. Uh, last week I talked to you about a, a staff member here at Sharon House, Carol. And she was a very much of a background um, staff member. And um, I told you about how she was very, very ill and came in. We had a lunch for the, the um, house moms member. And she came in, you know, on her walker. And we were all running to kind of help her. And she says, please, please, this is about, not about me. This is about the house moms, please. And I told you that story last week. And very soon after that, we were attending her memorial service. And here she was again, a very background lady. The church was packed. And I will never forget the very beginning of the service, um, down the center aisle of the church, um, her grandchildren processed in, singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I just was blown away at the legacy that she was leaving. Wow, amazing. This is what the last chapter of Esther is really all about as they describe Mordecai one last time. B, what was he remembered for? Verses one through three, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land <clears throat> and on the coastlands of the seas and all the acts of his power and might and full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him and they were written in the book of Chronicles. This is for the next night of insomnia um, of the king of Media and Persia. Three, here's the important part. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to the king Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to his people. Wow, we see four things mentioned there in verse four. He was great among the Jews. He was popular with the multitude of his brothers. Three, he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all of his people. He was remembered so much for his goodness, for his edification of his brothers, and all these things that look at us, thousands of years later, what are we doing? We're remembering Mordecai. Wow, amazing, amazing. In summary, as we close, so we look at how Mordecai was honored in this last cha chapter. Once again, some very important principles we see. First, A, God has a divine design. When God uses people, they are usually unexpected. His people are his masterpieces, like Esther, like Mordecai, like the women that we're going to be studying next semester. When God uses people, he uses people with unpretentious qualities. In other words, humility. Humility, wow. Verse three again, talking about um, Mordecai, popular, held, high, held in high esteem. It talks about another version. Why? Because he sought the welfare of his people. What a contrast, think about this for just a minute with me. What a contrast to the type of people that our culture elevates. Flashy, successful, powerful, all those things that 
that from a human perspective seem so important. But B, God always, next principle, God always cares for his people. We saw his sovereign hand unfolding throughout the book. We have seen plots unfolding and changing, but God always had his way and his people were in his care. Let me say that again, 2020, ladies. God always had his way and his people were in his care. What a lesson for us. God always has us in his care, no matter what the uh, circumstances look like around us in our country, no matter what this pandemic thing looks like, no matter how long we have to wear the mask, I don't know, all of these things. God has a plan to care for his people. Wow. Here's the question, the most important of all. Are you one of his people? We're not talking about just a head knowledge because the Bible says this is kind of scary that even demons know who he is. And guess what? I don't think the demons are his people. Do you? No. It means that we have accepted that second edict, um, uh, his coming to die for our sins, to clear away for the first edict, which we all have, which is that we are sinners and that our, our sin will cause us to have eternal death. But the second edict is Jesus came to die for us. We need to act on that. We need to make it our own. We need to receive that to give our life to the one who handles it so much better than we ever could. For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954 583 one five five two. We hope you can join us again next week.